Well, have a seat. My name is Jesse, if we've not met yet, and I'm a little giddy. I warned you guys last week that I was going to be giddy because today uh, we're going to be having some old-fashioned baptisms, okay? We are celebrating. I don't know if you saw the themes in the music, but we are celebrating because uh, we have a group of folks that are ready to take the next step of obedience. They've, they've confessed Jesus as their Lord, so they're already saved. Baptism doesn't save, but we're going to celebrate that through baptism. So you probably saw the tank of water out in the front, and if you have a chance, uh, I know you're in first service, and uh, we're going to finish, and you're probably going to go to lunch, but if you have a chance to circle back uh, at the end of second service, we're celebrating baptisms right out there, and it's just going to be a good, good day. Um, we've been uh, together uh, for the last several weeks now. We're on week five. We have one more week after this, but we're going to be in the book of James. If you if you want to follow along in your Bible, um, you can go ahead and turn to James chapter four, and, and we're, as a church, we're trying to recapture this word religion, uh, and I asked the question when we started the service, are you religious? And it's a hard question to answer because it has kind of a, so in some ways you take the word, it's a negative word, like I'm not religious, I have, a, I have a relationship with Jesus. In other ways you take the word, it's like, well, you know, I have a faith and I believe things that are, are bigger than just this world. I believe in more than the natural. And so in that sense, you're religious and in another sense, you're not. And uh, I, I just want to admit um, that the word religion has a lot of mixed definitions, but, but I believe that the book of James is wanting us to kind of recapture a practical faith. Um, if you could describe James in any simple one-sentence phrase, it's this, is that James believes our faith should have very practical and applicable steps. There should be things more than just our head, things more than just our songs that we sing. There should be things that our lives should reflect as a result of our faith. And those things would become religion, if you would. So for the purpose of this series, I've, I've been uh, applying these two definitions to religion, and I just want to recap them if you, if you would uh, allow me. Um, religion, the first one is this, that it's a particular system of faith and worship. It's a particular system of faith and worship. The particular system that we want to apply is the one that James has been going over for the last several chapters with us, that, that this is the system of faith and worship that Christianity should look like. Now, there are other systems out there uh, where uh, there are systems where you learn all the Christianese words and you sound super religious, uh, but at the end of the day, you haven't really said anything. Uh, I, I was listening to someone talk in a video, and uh, it, was, it was every church word you could think of strung together over the course of a five-minute monologue. And at the end of it, I know all the words that he said. I, I speak English, and I've been in church long enough to know how churchy all those words were. But at the end of it, he didn't say anything. It was just a bunch of churchy words strung together, and it sounded religious, but that's, that's, not a, that's not a helpful system of faith and worship. James prescribes this particular system of faith and worship that seems to be more practical and more helpful to the body as we reflect the Jesus that we worship and serve. The second definition we've been looking at is that it's a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. And what I like about that definition, what we brought out of that definition over the last few weeks, is that there's no religious talk in that second definition. There's no word about faith or Jesus or God or supernatural. It's just, it's a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. And it's entirely possible that the thing that we've been religious about are not supernatural things, but it's the thing that we ascribe supreme importance our ability to get our kids ready for school early in the morning and to, like, I'm going to be super mom. And I, my, my highest importance is to show everybody and my kids how, how strong of a mom I am. If, if we're not careful, 
That becomes our supreme importance and, and we've ascribed religion to that. We've become religious about this thing that isn't helpful to anyone. And, and, and Jesus would say, I, I think I should be more important than your job as a parent. Um, sometimes we ascribe our supreme importance as a, as a guy, I can, I can vouch for this, to our ability to provide for our family and to show up. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, just full transparency, after flooding twice and having to go work on my house uh, those two different times, uh, there were a lot of nights, it's midnight, I'm hanging sheetrock and I'm thinking to myself, this is the script that's going on in my head, I'm not measuring up as a husband and a father right now. My kids, my wife are somewhere else and I can't get this house put back together fast enough. I felt like I wasn't measuring up and the mistake I was making in that moment was my supreme importance was how fast can I get this house together? And Jesus says, I should be your supreme importance. And when our faith is ascribed properly where it belongs, then, then, then we, we are better able to weather storms. Uh, and there is no puns intended in that sentence. Uh, we, are, we are better able to withstand the trials that, that James mentions. And so over the last, uh, we've now gone over uh, three chapters. We'll be in the fourth chapter now. Over the last three chapters, James has given us extremely practical religious things, extremely practical steps that if, if we take them, if we, if we steer our faith towards the direction that he says, then, then we're better able to reflect Jesus. Here are some of the things that we've covered. Uh, if we can bring up that next slide, please. That James believes that our religion should fortify us for both outer and inner trials. That was chapter one. He says, count it pure joys when you face trials of many kind. Why, James? Because they're going to show you what was most important to you. And when you're steadfast, when you stand strong in that, you're going to see the will of God. It's not that the trials are small. It's that when we face trials, we know that our religion was useful. We know that, uh, we know that our faith is stronger. And, and what's interesting is that if you know those older Christians who have been following Jesus for a while, who have faced trial after trial after trial, you see in them a, a competence in their religion. You see in them a security that the next huge trial that would be big enough to rock my faith, they handle it with grace and dignity and steadfastness in a way that is encouraging to me. Why? Because the religion that they've been practicing for the last ever how many years they've been following Jesus wasn't just talk, and it wasn't just flowery language, but it actually fortified them to handle outer trials. And remember, James, he talks about our temptations and sins, and he says, he says that the things that tempt us, honestly, they come from inside us. They're our own desires. We are tempted, he says in James chapter 1, when we are lured and enticed by our own desires, and so our religion, our faith should be fortifying us against our own desires that are trying to steer us away constantly. I mean, who here like agrees that like uh, there is just, it's this constant tug of war between you and your heart. You want your heart to go towards Jesus and your heart's like, no, this is funner. Let's do this instead. And you're like, no, get back here, heart. Uh, our religion, our faith should be fortifying for those struggles that are both outside of us and inside of us. Our religion, he says, James says, should be driving us to real action. Our religion shouldn't just be the thing that we do when we show up on Sundays and we sing songs to Jesus and, and we praise and we celebrate baptisms, but then we go out and all of our religion was found in that one hour on a Sunday. Our religion, our faith, should be driving us to action. Specifically, James will say, that that action should be self-reflection. We should have moments in our life where we pause and we look, like, like one looks into a mirror and we see like, who, who Jesus says that we are in reality. Um, so we do uh, some self-reflection, and we should be driving towards joining other people when they're in their affliction. 
Now, I know a lot of churchy people that they, they love to hang out with other folks when their life is going great. And as soon as their life turns sideways, the churchy people are like, oh, man, I'm sorry, I'm, I've got to, I'm going to go over here. And when God blesses you again, I'll come back and I'll come hang out with you. And we just like, we run away, don't we? There's a tendency to run away from people in their affliction. But James says that we should join others in their affliction. When we are aware that someone in our body is hurting, is devastated, is, is dealing with anxiety, is dealing with uh, you know, a flooded home I mentioned earlier, is dealing with whatever life throws at them. Uh, it's, not, it's not if, it's when we know of someone dealing with something. Our religion should drive us to just go and say, you know what, I'm going to sit in this affliction with you. I think a lot of times, uh, I, I find this in myself, a lot of times I run away from folks in their affliction because I feel like I should have more answers than I have. And because I don't have the answer for cancer, I just, that didn't mean to rhyme, but I don't have the answer for it. I, I, I don't know what to do. But James says, you don't have to have the answer. Just join them, visit them in their affliction and just like sit and weep and mourn with people who are weeping and mourning. The third thing our religion, James says, should do, it should cause us to see the dignity of others, even when those other people don't quite look and act and smell and you know, otherwise look like us. That our religion, as we join others in their affliction, we see them for, for who they are, that, that they have dignity and they were all made in the image of God. James even says, he, he makes it a point to say, don't you realize that those who are poor in this world, that the Lord has chosen to celebrate and be rich in faith? If we're not careful, we surround ourselves with people who look like us, who deal with life the same way that we do, who have the same sort of resources we do and the same sort of likes, and they cheer for the same teams that we cheer for. And we become completely oblivious to what the Lord is doing in another group of people who are different than us. God's people, our church, should be a group of people that look something different than each other in how we look at the world and how the world has treated us. And in those differences, we learn more about who our God is. That's, that's a really useful religion, isn't it? That we learn, we grow in our knowledge of God by learning the experiences of other people and seeing the dignity in those people who look different than us. And then the last thing that I think, just kind of in recapping, our religion should cause me anyway, uh, and I think all of us, to slow down in our speaking and speed up in our hearing. Last week we talked so much about the tongue and the power that the tongue has. And one easy way to control the negative effects that our mouth can get us into is to just shut it. <laughs> James, James is like, hey man, you know, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You know, he didn't say that, but you know, it's like my grandma's words or something. You know, when, when, we, when we are slow to speak and we are quick to hear, we, we may actually hear some information that uh, unveils some new things for us. This is all James and religion. This is what religion should look like. Not, not the, the version of religion that maybe some of us have, have thrown the towel in on church. You know, every, I, I talk to people all the time. It's like, I'm just so sick of like churchy things. And like, it's, it's fake. It's religious. And I'm going to throw the towel in. Well, that's not the kind of religion that James speaks to. When I read this kind of religion, I don't know about you, but it's satisfying to me. I, I see that kind of religion, and I think that, that's the kind of religion I want people to see in me, that I show dignity to them, and I listen to them when they were speaking, and I join them in their affliction. I want a religion that drives me towards that, because that is appealing to me, and I think it's appealing to a broken and hurting world. So uh, let's, let's join together. Uh, we're going to go into chapter 4. 
And um, I'm just going to uh, begin by saying that it turns out that James thinks religion should have, uh, at least a useful religion, uh, should have an element of conflict resolution. Anybody ever go from conflict to conflict? Do you have conflict in your life? Never? No? It's okay. Everybody, like Thanksgiving, it's okay. Yeah, some of us do. Uh, some of us are like, I'm in here hoping no conflict shows up. I'm in here to not talk about my conflict. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the human condition is that um, where two or more are gathered, there is conflict. The reason for that is because we're all broken. We all see the world different. We all, we all have our own opinions. We all, there's a reason, but regardless of the reason, the fact is that it's there. You can't enter a space without there being conflict. Some people will move from church to church because there was conflict. There was conflict in that church, and so I'm done. I'm getting out of this church, I'm going to go to this church. Hey, it turns out there's people in that church too, and now there's conflict again. And so I'm leaving that church, and they do that about three or four times, and then, and then what? Uh, Christians are just hypocritical, and they throw in the towel on church altogether. Because, why? Because there was conflict. And yet James is about to spend an entire chapter talking about conflict in the church, and he thinks that religion that is useful, that is helpful, should be able to handle it should be able not to run from it, but to respond to it. So we're, we're going to talk for the next uh, little bit, not about conflict management, but conflict resolution. Like how, do we, how do we get to the bottom of, of conflict? Um, it, it will be helpful if I repeat a couple of things from before. Uh, two, two things specifically. One is, who is James, the author? Uh, James is the little brother of Jesus, and uh, we know James, uh, at one point in Jesus' ministry, was not a follower of Jesus. And yet at the end of Jesus' ministry, after the resurrection, James becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And so James is a very unique character, someone that I can, I can get behind. I, I respect someone who says, you know what? I'm convinced that my big brother is the savior of the world. I'm going to put all my tokens into that hat. That, that is, that is a, a prime evidence that the resurrection is true. If the resurrection was fake, I think the little brother of Jesus would be like, I am not going to die for this guy. I'm not going to die. Uh, but he does die. James eventually dies for the sake of Jesus. Why? Because, because Jesus really transformed him. And so James is the little brother of Jesus who has now become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, second thing that's important to remember is who is he writing to? He said at the very beginning of James that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so what we know about church history is this, that the church was formed in Jerusalem. Pentecost happened in Jerusalem, and there were 3,000 added on one day, and then another day, 5,000 added. Eventually, there's just you know, thousands and thousands of people who are followers of the way, followers of Jesus, but they're all in the city of Jerusalem. And then you have a moment in the middle of Acts where Saul goes and ravages the church. Uh, some of you may remember that from a few weeks ago. And in that moment, when Saul ravages the church, Scripture says in Acts that the church dispersed in that moment. The, the apostles, James and Peter and the rest of them, they stayed in Jerusalem, but the church scattered. And this is the first time that Christians in, in, in any serious quantity have left Jerusalem and now they're, they're elsewhere. And they scattered from their homeland where things made sense and they knew where resources were, and they knew where their family was, and now they've scattered into faraway lands. Some of them go to Samaria, some of them go to Jordan, some of them go to Syria, some of them go down to Egypt. They just scatter everywhere. And in that scattering, and maybe some of you have been transplanted in your jobs or something, in that scattering, um, it's easy for conflict to arise. Anybody ever moved and just like you have an argument every day as you're unpacking boxes and then when the last box is unpacked, you're like, oh, yeah, the marriage is better again. Like, like conflict is ended all of a sudden. Uh, it, it's, it's a real phenomenon that when you scatter and when the things that we're so sure are shaken out from under you, 
conflict is bound to arise. And so James is writing to the church as they've scattered, and he's writing to them knowing that conflict is happening in those places that they are. And he wrote this letter not to any one church. You know how sometimes Paul, he'll write a letter to Ephesus, and so it's supposed to just be read in Ephesus, but we get a copy of it, and we call it Ephesians. James writes this to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. His idea was that he would write one letter, the book of James, about practical religion, things that they can do as they're leaving Jerusalem, and then it's spread to all the different churches, wherever they are, wherever they find themselves. And he believes, James believes, that all of the churches are going to deal with conflict. All of them. There's not like just one church who's really having a hard time with conflict and he just kind of makes a broad statement. He's, he's talking to a group of people that are, are having to, like, how do, we, how do we say that we both love Jesus yet we yell at each other sometimes? How, how do we say that we both love Jesus and yet we disagree on whether or not the end times will look like this? How do we say we both love Jesus and you vote Democrat and you vote Republican? How do we say that? How do we deal with conflict in this place? That's what James wants to ask and answer. James uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he asks this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I'm, I'm going to pause right there because he's going to go on to answer what he, what he sees, but I think that's a really good reflection question. It would be really good that if you find yourself in, in your marriages or in, in church or may, wherever, that there's constantly conflict in work, uh, what is it that's causing the quarrel? What is it that's causing the fight? And just spend like a good 30 minutes, an hour, just reflecting. Like, what? where is that coming from? Why is it that every time me and this person get into the same room, it ends in the same argument with the same frustrations, and we end with just like walking away from each other? Why does it keep repeating itself? What is it, James asks, that causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Uh, I don't usually go to and mention Greek, but I'll, I'll say something about this. Um, English, English has uh, you singular and you plural. Uh, Texan has you singular and y'all plural, right? It'd be helpful if this passage was written in Texan instead of English uh, because every time he says the word you, he means the y'all. He means the plural. And so he's saying, what is it that causes quarrels and what causes fights among all of you people? All, what, what causes it in your church? What causes it in your group of people? What causes it in your circle of friends? What causes it in y'all? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. Again, y'all, your passions are at war within you, your group of people. And, and what he drives at is, and he's going to unpack this some more, but, but he's, he's reflecting on a church that is now scattered. And as, as the group of, let's say, 20 people go and form the church in Samaria, um, these 20 people have different desires for what winning looks like, but they're all one church. And, and he's saying your passions, your desires are at war within you. Some of you want to proclaim the name of Jesus despite the consequences, and some of you want safety and to surround yourself with the rich people and to help. And he's saying, he's saying you're at odds with each other because your passions, your root desires, the things that are at the heart of you are at odds with each other. The word passion, we get the word hedonism out of, and so it's the thing that is like bringing you joy. Some of you want to, want to go and, and make a, a fortune, and some of you just want to go and make sure your kids are safe, and some of you want to go and make sure that you're you know, going to be the next you know, member of the school board in your new city, uh, but you're, you're, all, you're not in singular focus. There should be a singular focus when we say we wave the banner of Jesus. He says, you desire, in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Well, that, that escalated quickly. 
Uh, I, I really think he's reflecting on, on his brother Jesus. You know, Jesus says that um, if you have anger in your heart, so, so much anger, you, you're guilty of murder. He's, he, he's, he, he wants to say how serious it is. When, when you're in a group of people and you're, you're harboring uh, s- severe anger or uh, you just, you, you're not handling it, you're not, you're not resolving the conflict, you're just managing the conflict, he says, he says you're, you're guilty of, of murder. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You, you want these other things that the other group of people in your midst don't want. You're, you're, you're going in two different directions, and so it causes a fight. This is true in your workplace. You have two supervisors of equal standing, and they think the company should do A, and this other uh, thinks the company should do B, and they go in different directions, and their desires are at odds with each other, and it causes conflict in the workplace. You have a marriage where the husband says we should do this, and the wife says we should do this, and there's not resolution. It's just like, well, we'll manage this, and then there's, there's conflict. If, if a church says we should be all about serving that community over there, and the other half of the church says, no, we need to have events for the people in here, there's going to be conflict in the group because we're, not, we're just managing it. We're just trying to live with each other. We're not resolving it. So, so you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. He, he mentioned earlier about wisdom, that, that if you want wisdom, just ask God for wisdom, and, and he gives freely. He says you don't have the things that you're looking for, a singular vision and knowing where to go, because maybe you haven't asked God yet. Or, he says maybe in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Well, what's a wrong way to ask? To spend it on your passions. He, said, he looks at the, the church as they've scattered, the people as they've gone. They're asking perhaps for good things, but they, they were wanting it to spend on their passions. You know anybody who, uh, maybe, maybe they angle their argument or their, their um, uh, I don't know, the, the discussion with you, and it sounds really good. Like, I hear what you're saying, but it, it sounds a little selfish. Like, uh, they, they say just the right thing to the boss so they get the, the uh, promotion, or they look good in front of the boss. It, you're asking wrongly, James would say, to use it on your own passions. You adulterous people, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this is a, a biblical principle throughout all of Scripture. It turns out that uh, God has designed his mission in such a way that it is almost 100% opposed to the mission that the rest of the world is, is after. Um, it turns out that, that God would choose um, that we love our enemies uh, rather than we prove our enemies wrong and put them in their proper place. It turns out that Jesus would recommend that we forgive our brother seven times, 70 times, no matter how many times they ask for forgiveness, rather than just cutting them off and, and just, just letting them flounder. It, it turns out that, that God's mission is that the weak are surrounded by the strong. Those in affliction are visited by those who are not currently dealing with affliction instead of those in affliction left to deal for themselves and the weak are left to just flounder and, and, and fail. And, and James's warning to them as, as the church is trying to figure out how to be safe in their new communities is you're, you're playing patty cake with the world, thinking that the world is going to keep you safe, but every time you do that, you find out that it's against what God would want for you. 
God, God wants for us that we would look different than the world, but not for just the sake of looking different, but it turns out that it's a better way. God's way is a better way to organize and a better way to, to deal with um, our conflicts. It turns out that if, if our passions, if our desires were all in line, if, if we all in agreement said, you know what, I don't really care who wins or loses this argument, but can we just agree that uh, if, if the Lord wants us to go move to that direction and we both are in agreement on it, that, that we'll go, like, that's the better way. We, if our desires would line up with God's will, then, then the conflict goes away. It turns out, James thinks, that the reason why there's all these fights and quarrels and conflicts is that people have desires that are in conflict with each other. Uh, there's a there's a martial art. Uh, I, I like any like Jackie Chan fans. Like you, you like I I like to pretend I know a lot of martial arts. I don't, uh, but but I like to pretend to. And there's this martial art called Aikido. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Aikido. Uh, it translates something. I was looking it up. It's a Japanese word. It translates something like uh, a harmonious spirit, which is a really weird thing to have for a martial art. I'm going to learn a fighting technique called harmonious spirit. Okay, so that that seems strange. Aikido's primary principle is to uh, defend yourself without hurting the person that's attacking you. Think about that. Some guy takes a swing at you, and not only are you worried about not hurting yourself, but you're worried about not hurting them in return. You, you respond to it in a way that you, you dodge the punch or you grab the punch and you like go with it. There is zero offensive technique in Aikido. It's all defensive. You just, it, it requires, in order for Aikido to kick in as a martial art, it requires there to be an aggressor. The, the Aikido practitioner can never be the aggressor or they're doing something else. They're doing like judo or taekwondo or something like that. And uh, when I was a, a social worker, I had to go learn a conflict uh, management system called SAMA, and it's by a guy who learned Aikido and he worked in Rusk Hospital. So think about that for a second. He works in Rusk Hospital, where, uh, if you don't know, it's a mental hospital that, that uh, I think there's like a criminal side of it, and there's a non-criminal side, but it's a group, a population of people that they're not always in the right mind. Their reason for conflict and their reason for being mad at you isn't always based on reality or everybody that you see in the room as well. Sometimes they're mad at someone in the room that you're not aware is in the room with you at the moment. Like, they're just not always there. And this guy, uh, I think his name was Larry, uh, he knows Aikido, but he's a social worker, and he's watching, uh, he's watching the patients become aggressive with the people, the, the workers, the, the staff. And, and the staff, in response, would try, they're trying to inflict pain, and so the staff is like, I'm going to inflict pain back on you. And so he was watching this happen, and it, was, it became a matter of who was stronger, and at the end of who was stronger, eventually they would get the medicine back in the patient, but the staff person doesn't walk away without an injury. Both parties are walking away with an injury. Someone's got a broken something, someone's got a busted this, there's a scratch, there's a claw, you have to go get like shots because you got, you know, whatever. And he says there's got to be a better way. And so he invents a conflict technique, conflict resolution technique, based on Aikido that has a verbal element and a physical element about how to take weapons out of, out of people's hands and how to talk them down if they're just really coming at you. And then he teaches this to social workers. So I had to go and be trained with this guy who was kind of a hippie. He was like, he has like a, he wants to talk about like auras and power and stuff like that. But he had this interesting thing. You couldn't touch this guy. He's like 75 years old. He'd tell someone, he's like, hey, come take a swing at me. And he would stand there and, and then you're on the ground and he's still standing there. 
And he's like, what, did you trip or something? So he gets somebody else. And you always have like the young 20-something guy who's like, I can take this guy down. And you can't. You can't take the guy down who knows Aikido. And he, he has zero attack techniques. He submits, Aikido, all Aikido, submits to, well, there's a conflict. But it takes two to be in conflict. And so I'm just going to choose not to be in the conflict. And if you come at me, I'm not going to come at you with aggression. I'm going to just defensively take your energy and put it where it goes, which is away from me. You said something mean about my parenting? Let me just put that where it goes, right over here. I'm going to file this in the trash. I'm going to take all of this negativity, and it turns out I don't have to respond to it. It turns out that if you come to me and tell me how bad of a, a, a pastor I'm being or how bad of a father I'm being, or you tell me I'm just really terrible at football, which, which you know, whatever, man, uh, it turns out I don't have to respond to you at all. It turns out I, I could choose to just not care what you think. And James thinks the reason why there's quarrels and fights in the church is that there are two passions, at least two, that are at odds with each other. I wonder what would happen if one of the passions would be like, you know what, do what you want, but I think that this is what we're going to do. And just chooses not to respond to the other conflicting passion. Would there still be a fight? Would there still be a quarrel? And the answer is no, because it takes, it takes two to fight. Therefore, he says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Stop playing patty cake with the way the world works. The world works like this. You, you show how strong you are, and they show how strong you are, and whoever's the strongest wins. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose, he says in verse 5, that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. James he, he has this vision of God that he looks at us, those of us who he has saved, those of us who have called him Lord, and he believes that God yearns jealously over the Spirit. He wants for our spirit, uh, our actions, to reflect his glory, and he yearns jealously over it. We shouldn't, you know, play patty cake with the world. And then verse 6, when I had to underline it in my Bible, you, you do what you want, uh, but he gives more grace. You know, at the, at the end of, of this, it, it's so easy to read some of what James says, and, and it's just like, man, I, I could be a better husband. Oh, I've let, I've let my wife down. I could be a better father. I've let my kids down. I could be a better employee. I've let my boss down. I, I, I could, we could be better in the church. We've let all of us, each other down, and then we just beat ourselves up. But what? Verse 6. But God, he gives more grace. The reason why God's spirit, uh, you know, inspired James to write these things isn't, as the wagging finger, just for the sake of wagging the finger, it is so that we realize, oh man, there's more grace. Just like last week, the tongue sets us, it's set on fire by hell and it sets this amazing forest fire. It has all this power to do amazing damage. And then at the end, it's, he talks about wisdom. Why? Because the tongue is just a diagnostic tool to tell us what we turn over to God. Why? Because, because he gives more grace. Our hope isn't that we, we point the finger at each other and say, you've messed up and you've messed up and I've messed up and it's all burning down. No, our hope is that when we see the mess up, we fall in agreement with God's word. Yes, it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be passions that are at odds with each other. What do we do now? He gives more grace. We trust the grace of Jesus. We sang songs earlier about falling under the, the cross and trusting that the cross is paid for it all. He, he, he's paid for this. He gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, another biblical principle. You can't, you can't be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. That was the first biblical principle. The second one is this. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He says, therefore, it says. I had to look up. I was like, where does it say that? Where's he quoting, I wonder? Turns out he's quoting Peter. Because Peter said that exact same sentence in chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Exact same sentence. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, the, the, the quickest way out of a conflict is to just, you know, swallow your pride. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we're in this position. I'm sorry that this hurts. I'm sorry I don't understand what I've done to offend you. I'm sorry. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what do we do, James? Like, what, what could we possibly do to get ourselves out of this problem? Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, because of all these things above, therefore, submit yourselves to God. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I'm going to choose to submit myself to God. Resist the devil, he says, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Those are really helpful principles. Uh, it's good to know that God isn't playing hide-and-go-seek with us. Anybody ever get into a moment, you're, like, you're just crying out to God, and you're praying, like, does he even hear me? I don't know. Is he there? Well, Scripture says if you draw near to God, he draws near to you. Um, it's interesting also to me that uh, where he says, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Um, when he was talking before in chapter 1 about uh, our sin, when he was talking about the things that lure us away, when he was talking about our mouth, he never mentions the devil. The problem, you see a lot of church people, uh, you know, the devil's just trying to mess us up. Well, maybe, maybe it's our sinful pride that's trying to mess ourselves up. Maybe we self-sabotage more than, maybe we give the devil too much credit. But when it comes to conflict in the people, conflict in the church, James warns, if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. It turns out the only time that James is going to mention the devil in all of this is when there's conflict in the church. How about that? What, what I love about this, uh, I should have said this at the, at the top, is um, usually someone would be on stage preaching this sermon after a big fight has happened in the church, right? Like, it sounds like there's some, like, super undercurrent. There's nothing. There's no arguments. There's no fighting here. Uh, there have been zero fires that needed to be put out. It's, it's, it's a pleasant and peaceful church, and as far as I know, has been forever, since, since the beginning. We've never had a season that I'm aware of that there was just this, like, year-long battle and argument and fighting. It, it's, we collectively have been a pretty peaceable group, and so perhaps... Um, we should be reading this more as a kind of a sigh of relief. Or maybe we should read this as, you know what? If conflict does come up, if I'm in a community group next month and like one community group leader's like, you know, we're going to be bigger than the other community group leader or some nonsense like that. Um, maybe we call it what it is. That's just the devil. That's where the devil is. He just sits back and he lets, he lets this one's passions and this one's passions go at odds with each other. And he's the puppeteer who just wants to keep dangling the world in front of him. Like, look, look how much fun this is. But he says, James says, if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. Just like say no. Just like you say no to drugs. Say no to the devil and he'll flee from you. And draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You want to be closer to God? Start walking towards him and he doesn't run away from you. That is so beautiful. 
It reminds me of uh, the prodigal son. The prodigal son, he's like, I got to get close to my dad. And he's walking up the street. And as he's walking up the street, the dad sees him from the porch and runs towards him. Doesn't wait, doesn't go in the living room and make him take the extra steps. He, he, they run and they meet and they embrace. You draw near to God, he draws near to you. Cleanse your hands, James says, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning or your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Um, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of churches, they'll, you know, uh, they don't want to talk about the mourning and the weeping. It's okay. If, if you look in the mirror and you see something wrong with your face, it's okay to be upset about that, right? Like, like you, you have a scar under your eye you didn't know was there, and, and you see it in the mirror for the first time. It's okay to be like, golly, I have a scar under my eye. It's okay to mourn that. It's dumb to be like, well, you know what? I'm going to make the scar as beautiful as possible. You know, like I'm going, it, it's, it's okay if you see something wrong in your heart. If you're reading God's word or you're just praying or you, you're in conflict with someone and you see that you have wrong desires, it's okay to grieve it and to weep and to admit, Jesse, I'm a broken person. I'm not perfect. I said last week, there, eventually, if I haven't already, I'm going to let you down because none of us are perfect. James has already said that. And so when we realize and when we're faced with our own imperfection, it's okay to mourn it and then trust that there's more grace. He says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He said before that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here's a biblical principle. If we um, don't humble ourselves, God humbles us. You know, Hebrews, he talks about the discipline of God, that he disciplines those whom he loves. Why, why would God discipline me? Well, if I'm not dealing with my sin, if I'm not dealing with, with my imperfections and turning them over to the Lord, he's going to make sure that they're fully known to me. <laughs> he's going to make sure they're fully known to you. If I don't humble myself before the Lord, he humbles me. But either way, I'm getting humbled. And when I'm humbled, he will exalt you. Uh, James said at the beginning in chapter 1, he said that, um, that the lowly should, should celebrate in their exaltation and the rich in, in their bringing down, that, that we, we, we become equal. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. All right, now, now we, we've dealt with ourselves, whether that be in church or marriage or work. We've, we talked about our heart. We know where our heart should be. We should trust in the grace of God and we should humble ourselves. Now, what do we do, James? Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another. Now he's back on the mouth. We, we have to be careful that when we're, when we're in a conflict, that our anger doesn't produce in us a quick tongue to speak evil against the other person in the conflict. And I have, I have the fastest, like, I, I have the fastest mouth in this room. Like, you have no idea. The, the things that I say and I just want to put back in my mouth, like, I can't chew it all, all the way back down. And I read this and I think, man, this is, this is good advice. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who am I? Who am I to ascribe to you what your motivation is? So um, 
you and I were trying to decide where we're going to go to lunch later, and uh, I decided last week I'm going to be vegetarian. Let's say none of these things are true. And, uh, you know, I'm telling you, I need to go to Jason's Deli. And you're like, no, I want to go to, to Roadhouse, or as my youngest son likes to call it, Road Steak. I need to go to Road Steak. And you say, I want to go to Road Steak. And I, I'm telling you, no, I'm vegetarian. I need my salad bar. I got I to gotta do my salad, salad-y things. Um, as long as we keep it at that level, we're, we're having more or less civil discourse. But the moment I look at you and I point at you and I tell you that you're a murderer because you eat beef or some, some nonsense like that, and I ascribe to you something about your character, James says I have just become a judge of the judge. It is not my place to speak evil against my brother. It's not my place to understand their motivation or to understand what drove them to that point. It's not my motivation to understand why you voted for who you voted for. I shouldn't care. We can have discourse, but as soon as I ascribe to you a motivation beyond what you've revealed to me, I have become evil, according to James. I've spoke evil against my brother. You know, the way Jesus said that in Sermon on the Mount is, um, uh, oh, oh, speck and plank. Goodness, I should have looked it up. We're so quick to pull the speck out of our brother's eye while we're walking around with that big plank swinging around in our eye. Maybe we should just deal with ourselves from now on. Maybe when we find ourselves in conflict, we just take a moment and just, you know, <sighs> I got I to work through some things right here. I'm going I'm to take a step back. What I'm going to choose not to do, I'm going to choose not to speak evil against one of my brothers or my sisters and to assume I understand what drove them to that motivation or to assume I understand what made them angry. So verse 13, he says, come now, now that we've covered all of these things and you're ready to move out into the world and do stuff, come now. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Here, he's writing to the group of people that they started church in Jerusalem, now they've scattered. Like all of a sudden they had to get up and go. Now I'm talking to a group of people that about 18 months ago, we were getting ready for spring break and then all of a sudden, pfft, like the world shut down. We didn't know that was coming. And he says, he says, now, those of you who say, hey, you know what we're going to do tomorrow, next year, we're going to go over there, we're going to make a profit. Then we're going to go over here and make a profit. We're going to do all these things. We're going to make all these plans, and we're going to build up all these plans. That is the quickest way to being frustrated with your brother when, when the plan doesn't work out. When your business partner goes away, or when you go into quarantine, or, or whatever. We, we would be wise, James says, not to stack up all of our plans with no wiggle room and no space for flaw. He says, he says, those of you who do that, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? That's another good question to reflect on. What, what is our life? How, how much of this space on this earth do we have? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And at the end of it all, our time spent on this earth is so small and so finite and so fragile uh, maybe we don't have as much control over all of the circumstances that this world will throw at us. I don't have to convince you of that. We, we live in a post-pandemic world, current pandemic world, whatever we're in. Uh, we know we have very little control. And he, so he says this, uh, we, could, we could take the nihilist approach. That's not James's approach. We could, we could be like a bunch of Nietzsche's in the room and be like, you know what? It's all coming to an end. Let's burn it down and go like anarchists. You know, might as well. We can't control the world. No. No, that's not, that's not James's approach. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. It's again, it's submission to what the Lord wants. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. 
So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whatever the Lord wills, we'll live, we'll do this or that. There's so, so much of, of the next five years, all of the next five years is completely unknown. Some of you are wanting to start families in the next five years. Some of you are looking at retirement. Some of you are looking at empty nesting in the next five years. Yes, don't have to deal with that. Some of you are, you know, you're looking for that next career and you're studying. Some of you are getting ready for college. The next five years we have plans. And then, and then one day, something in your plan isn't going to go quite right. And it's going to be a moment of high frustration and high conflict. It's going to be a moment of potential heartbreak. It's going to be a moment of, that's not what I wanted. I didn't plan that at all. Well, what is our life? It's a vapor, and a vapor has very little control over what it looks like and what it's going to do. None of us wanted to go into the world that we're in now, last spring break or whatever it was. But I wonder if, now looking back, if we're honest, we see that like in, in all of that chaos, in all of that isolation, in all of those changed plans, in all of those different circumstances that we're in, did we see the Lord do something different that we never expected? And I think it's a universal, yeah, there were these moments and these conversations there were things that we thought were important that we realized they were not important. There were things that, that we thought would be a bigger deal than they were, and they turned out so, so small. And there were things that we weren't even looking at that were small, and it turns out like you need to have a supply of toilet paper on hand. You didn't think that was important until last spring break, and now you know. You, like, it was small, and now it was big. And it turns out that the Lord uses those chaotic moments where our life was just a vapor, and we realized that our life was so fragile to reveal more about what his will is. In, in many ways, our world is worse off than what it was a year and a half ago. In, in probably more ways, the things that were already bad are just more obvious to us. But in very real, real ways, we as followers of Jesus are better followers of Jesus than we were last spring break. Because things have been realigned in our lives. Instead of making a ton and ton of plans, our lives should be this. You know what, if the Lord wills it, I'm going to submit to that. I don't know what he's willing. I'm, I'm willing to seek his will. I don't know where he is. I don't know how to find his will. Draw close to God and he will draw close to you. Go and ask him. I don't know what to do. I'm not smart enough. Have you asked God for wisdom? Because James said earlier that he's in a giving mood and he's willing to, to give it. But he ends this whole passage about conflict so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What, what James seems to think is that in those conflicted churches and those groups of people are some people who know the right thing to do and are choosing not to do it. And for that person to know how to resolve the conflict or to back out of it, for that person it is sin. For, for us, we, we should seek God's will. And see, like even in all of the chaos that the pandemic world gives, that there's this beauty, there's this clarifying nature that it's given us to know things that are more important, know things that are less important. And in, in the new knowledge that we have, just choose, I'm going to submit to God's will. And if we do that, if we humble ourselves, because God opposes the proud, we're going to find in ourselves and our world around us a lot less conflict. We're going to find in our, in our marriages and in our workplace a lot less arguments that are messing up our day because, yeah, I'm not, 
I don't have to get involved. Turns out I don't need to respond to that. Let me uh, pray. Uh, and then you'll be dismissed. Uh, remember that after second service, if you guys want to circle back, uh, at 12 o'clock we're meeting at the tank for some baptisms. And we're going to celebrate uh, those lives, those folks that are choosing to follow in obedience to Jesus, that their life has been transformed and they're going to walk in newness of, of life. And we're going to celebrate that because I believe that those aren't just words. I believe that God really transforms people. Um, and so we're going to celebrate together that later this morning. But let's pray, and I'll let you guys get out of here. Father, uh, this morning, as, as we read your word, um, Lord, I, I'm thankful that uh, I, I'm, I'm in a group of people that uh, is, is low in conflict, low in, in drama. And so um, we're, we're reading your, your words, and uh, we're, we're trusting that, that your way of dealing with conflict is better than the world's way. Uh, Father, forgive us for the times in our in our workplaces or in our marriages that that we try to to you know fight fire with fire, so to speak. Um, Lord, help us help us to be humble, help us to submit to Your will, help us to to realize that that our life is it's so finite and it's so it's so s- small. Uh, we shouldn't fill it up with fighting and bickering. Lord, may we as a group of people be known for, for peacefulness and our, our ability to bring peace to those around us. I pray, Lord, that the workplaces that are represented in this room and the, and the homes that are represented in this room will be known for more and more peace as we submit more and more to our Lord Jesus. So we pray this in his name. Amen.